0: Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. So hi guys, today we have Joshua Proven here on the History of Jackson podcast to talk about his book, Wild East, the British in Japan, 1854 to 1868.
1: How are you doing, Josh? Thank you
0: very much for coming to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to chatting about your book with you.
1: I'm doing. I'm doing well, Jackson. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to it too.
0: Well, I must say, I really enjoyed the book. It was really informative, really educational, and a, and a part of history that I've never looked at before. So it's really, really eye-opening. But how did how did you come to be interested in this? Such a, it's such a niche topic as well. But how did you come to become? Oh, how did you become interested in it?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm sort of known as one of the kings of niche subjects on, <laughs> online but um the question for me was always uh what was going on in japan as regards to the british empire in the 19th century and that japan was the only nation in asia to form part of the league of nations um but then fought as allies to the british in the first world war um you know, the, I, I thought I was thinking about this: how, in essence, did Japan, therefore, given all these things, avoid the colonial sort of domination that was suffered by China and, and other nations in the East? And so that's the, that's sort of the, the seed, the germ that sparked my interest in trying to find out um, what was going on. It, so it wasn't just it wasn't just sort of like I thought samurai were cool and stuff like <laughs> that. <laughs> But, but they are.
0: No, I think it's really interesting. Then they kind of developed and grew into such a powerful nation, and they still are today. Uh, but people today find Japan a very foreign and different country, and even like back then, it's very, very different. So, how was how was Japan arranged politically at this point?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, simple questions. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We love the simple questions that you can just, yeah. Right, well, um, this period is, uh, in Japanese history, is called the Edo period. Uh, It's named after the capital city of Japan then, called Edo, which is modern-day Tokyo. Uh, The Edo period lasted from around 1603 to 1868, and during that time, The country ran on a sort of feudal model with an economy based on uh, the rice crop the extent of which um, uh, per feudal domain determined the status of the lord who uh, owned the land so it was a lord who was worth a certain amount of what they called koku uh, which was the estimated amount of rice it took to feed a man for a day um You know, the the guy who had the most of that was considered very powerful. Um, Political power rested with these lords uh, called Daimyo, and these lords were traditionally subservient to a minister of state called the Shogun. Since the beginning of the Edo period, every Shogun um, had been from the Tokugawa clan. Uh, Their government, which sat in Edo, was commonly referred to as the Bakufu which is a sort of a jibe word, which refers to the old style military enclosure and references the fact that the the shogun was originally a supreme general uh, appointed by the emperor in the old days. Um, The distinction was important because the Tokugawa shoguns therefore derived their power from the will of the emperor who had been displaced as a political force at the end of the Genpei War in the 12th century and who resided in in great state and mystery in Kyoto, uh, the old capital of Japan. The emperor was by most political standards, a prop or figurehead by this point. But to be honest, by about 1854, the Shogun was kind of looking the same. So that's, that's, I, I hope that gives you some sort of idea. It's a very big topic, you know, the state of 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 Edo late Edo period Japan, uh, going into what they call the Bakumatsu, which is the end of the baku, uh, end of the Bakufu. Um, but it's uh, there's a lot you can read about it, and I, I, the purpose of this book is essentially to get people reading about it. So there's there's a nutshell for a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> anyway,
0: <laughs> perhaps a future topic. Uh, and it's very interesting to see that kind of dynamic change. And you show it very well in your writing of how the shogun kind of loses that power. But when we start looking at this relationship between Britain and Japan, you start by looking at a man called William Adams. So, who was he and why was he so important to this relationship? Well, uh,
1: William Adams is a sort of a sort of a he to. When I was researching the book, I, I met a few people in, in sort of who were, invo- who were more, very involved in Anglo-Japanese relations, and they all have a great respect for William Adams because he's sort of where the story begins. He was a shipwrecked English sailor who washed up in the 17th century and was detained as an intruder because for the entire Edo period, Japan was isolationist and kept only a token diplomatic relationship with its neighbors. And foreign powers. This was a policy that was called Sakoku, the closed stance, the closed country. This policy was adopted by the first Tokugawa shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu, and um, it was continued. Uh, now this daimyo uh, Ieyasu um, became the patron of, of William Adams uh, after he learned that Adams could help him build ships. Um, and Ieyasu kept him in comfortable confinement, you might call it, and ordered that he be treated uh, as one of the, the Bushi class, uh, uh, which is to say one of the noble class allowed to continuously bear arms, which today we call samurai. Um, so that's William Adams. He's, he's, he's important because he starts the story of Anglo-Japanese relations rather than him being integral to any sort of diplomatic overture per se although some people at the time in the 17th century did think they could get a foot in the door because of him and it seems quite interesting of how
0: he was brought into that kind of world uh, especially from a country so isolated um, but does this isolation up until 1854 does it characterize the relationship between Britain and Japan
1: the the, the... And I guess in a way, it, it sort of does, because in that William Adams even remained pretty distant to his own country after he was detained in Japan, the relationship diplomatically between the two countries was, was cordial, but indeed distant. Um, only the most formal exchanges of courtesies um, and presents occurred between the shoguns and the court of St. James through the 17th century. Um, and for the most part, Britain, as it became, I should say, was more interested in America, Africa and India and would only take China and Japan into their sights towards the 18th century. So it was a, a low-key relationship up until 18, the 1850s. Uh, yeah, the 1850s, really. Okay.
0: And then, so why did this change and why did, why did Britain want to go out and get a trade deal with Japan? Because uh, it seems quite quite different to go from cordial distance relationships to suddenly, well, what can we get from you?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I mean, in a way, that's sort of the, the the British imperialist sort of attitude to a lot of countries that they didn't have a great interest in to begin with. <laughs> but um, to begin with, the British interest in Japan was driven by the need to not get locked out of an emerging market by the Americans who forced a commercial treaty through with the Japanese in 1853, that's the Perry expedition. Um, Through the early 19th century, British merchants had been sensing an opportunity in Japan through illegal trading carried out on the verges of the Satsuma domain in Southern Japan. But at the beginning, there wasn't much to go on except what the Dutch had written about. Um, So commercially speaking, the British weren't hugely interested at all but they and everyone else in the game was interested in their own maritime endeavors such as whaling and safe harbor for um, safe harbors on the other side of the Pacific. Um, and this was a direct goal for the Americans who also wanted a port of call for refueling uh, for their ships heading to Southeast Asia and the Arabian Gulf from San Francisco, which was in itself a new boom town that opened up after the gold rush. So. The British had ideas about this too for their own ships, because there were a lot of uh, whalers and sailors who legitimately kept washing up in Japan and just getting held there because of the uh, the Sakoku laws. But um, it was always a really big finagling problem to get them out again. Um, although some of them, like William Adams and another guy, you know, it's incredibly called Ronald McDonald's or something like that. Huh. Who ended up, who ended up becoming quite famous as a foreigner living in Japan, but um, yeah. So the initial desire for a commercial treaty was the first was it was firstly mostly to do with firstly mostly was first mostly to do with geopolitical race for new markets in East Asia and competing with the other Western trading powers. I think.
0: Okay, and firstly, I think Ronald McDonald in Japan is an absolutely fantastic idea. Um. <laughs> But there seems to be, the way you described Japan just then, there seems to be a lot of contemporary comparisons between what Japan was like and what China was like. Uh, So why are these comparisons being made?
1: Uh, Well, as far as Western understanding went, which can be broadly summed up at a popular level as Dutch works out of Dejima in the Bay of Nagasaki and the writings of Marco Marco Polo, etc., China was poorly understood in Japan, even less so. Yet most involved in the China and Japanese trade understood that both nations were historically and culturally connected in some way. Uh, So a lot of the comparisons that, uh, a lot of the comparisons were simply being made so as to be able to begin building a hat rack that you could one day hang said hat on Um, to give people a reference point. It was almost, Impossible for people to resist comparing the two countries, to be honest, um, once they had gotten into China and then moved over to Japan. Uh, directly speaking, this is because, simply put, British merchants and diplomats first encountered the Chinese, uh, the ports in Shanghai, Hong Kong, you know, stuff like that. And the reviews on TripAdvisor would have been poor uh so when some of these guys get to japan their instant reaction is to note the similarities and the differences between the two countries and that's why you get a never-ending role of diplomats just saying well this is different to japan this is this is different to china they do things differently like this etc 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 not to sound too much like the king and i which is siam and that's a whole other difference
0: yeah and it's 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 interesting seeing those diplomats try and make those comparisons when sometimes they can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of these diplomats they they have to be there. They have to be experiencing it. So how how do these contemporaries describe life in Japan
1: at mm-hmm. this point? Some of them do it very well, and some of them are a little bit more sketchy. Uh, some are some are um, very sort of. Uh, what would be the word, Um, responsible and cautious about what they say, knowing that they are probably making mistakes as they write, and others are just sort of giving flat, this is what I saw with my own eyes sort of thing, and some of them actually will go and build on that and um, sort of build castles in the sky. Uh, The first mission to Japan, officially speaking, was led by Lord Elgin directly after the Opium War in China this mission would be very important in garnering interest in the country uh, for British diplomats and traders. Um, Now, his assistant was a guy named Lawrence Oliphant, and he made, he he left a very interesting account of the trip um, in which he paints Japan as a sort of real life fairyland. And it has to be said, most British visitors would report the same idyllic lost world that they felt the West had sacrificed to the industrial revolution. And so, yeah you get this sort of this sort of parameter where at one poll you have people, say like sir Rutherford alcock who uh, who tries to give a very detailed description of everything he saw from politics to buildings to people to customs, which he didn't properly understand, and admitting that he was probably making mistakes. Uh, very, very in-depth and accurate writers like Ernest Saau. And then you get sort of more like soldiers and, and and traders and stuff who just sort of jot down their observances and stuff like that so there is a range but overall a lot it's, it's very it's really quite positive in, in terms of the of, of contemporary British writing back home about Japan okay because
0: it's it seems very romantic the mm. way that they painted it out and I, I did I did enjoy reading the way that you described that these people were what the, what they were seeing, how they were reacting to things. And I really quite liked, like you said, that it was that idyllic relationship, the lost, the lost world. But ro- romanticism's kind of a rose-tinted glasses, really. Um was was their lives dangerous? You know, there's a large number of samurai um, in Japan. It's there's yeah, you know, there's all these different political relationships that they wouldn't have been aware of so was life dangerous for these foreigners in japan
1: mm. uh, the, the simple answer is yes and that's reflected in the title of the book you know i i've I named it wild east partly on the suggestion of the publisher and partly because in my head i was thinking as i was reading these accounts you know, there's a lot of the Wild West in this. Um, you know, anything can happen on any particular day because these people don't know what is going on around them. Um, so it could definitely be dangerous. Um, the coming of the Europeans and the way they did with flotillas of warships and stuff ushered in a, um, a unprecedented interaction of the nobility in day-to-day politics in Japan, for a start. And that meant factions were rising and splitting opinion as to whether to lock the country back down again and fight for Japanese sovereignty or play the long game and strengthen the country before striking. Um, many samurai from the, the the closed party, the Sakoku party, would take great delight in cutting up a European if he got the chance. Um, those who supported the other stance, the Kaikoku camp, the open camp, tried to get on with getting along. Um, so yes, by and large, being it was be it was actually thought it was quite a healthy place in terms of diseases and things. You weren't likely to catch something that killed you. Heat stroke was was pretty dangerous, but um, a foreigner was thought to be much more likely to be injured or die in an earthquake or at the hands of a disgruntled um, bushy or Ronin than than from disease. So definitely, you were. It, wasn't a, safe, it wasn't, wasn't a tremendously safe place, and like you say, a lot of the early stuff either, the, either just didn't see this danger or chose to ignore it. And was it different for the Dutch, the English,
0: and the Americans, or was it just a whole catch-all approach, that danger?
1: Yeah, it, generally speaking, it was any foreigner, although when it came to the Dutch... Um, because of the history of the Dutch with Japan, being the only European nation allowed to interact with Japan in a commercial capacity or diplomatic capacity, um, for special reasons during the Edo period, they were given a little island in the in the Bay of Nagasaki to sit on and have a have a um, uh, a, a trading post on. Uh, the Dutch were given breaks that other Europeans weren't, because at least the Japanese knew a Dutchman was someone that the law said was allowed to be in Japan. I don't know if you picked up that weird noise there a second ago. No, no, <laughs> okay. um, so they knew that the, the law was okay. And for, for for about 200 years, it has sort of acknowledged the presence of the Dutch in the country. But all these other guys who came in with their guns rolled out and their big scary ships and stuff, and going up and bullying the, the shogun into giving them the unequal tr- treaties as they called them um the english the french the russians the the prussians and all these europeans who came to get in on the game they were fair game these were interlopers they were foreigners they were like they just they were they were thought of especially by the warrior classes uh, a lot of the warrior class i should say because it is much more complex there were they, not all samurai were like regressive you know dullards who just wanted to kill people but yeah by and large a frenchman and an englishman were seen as basically the same evil and is, we're fair game and that's
0: probably a view that was shared with most of the world at, at some yeah. point but <laughs> i completely i completely emphasize oh, i emphasize that view that if someone rolled up to my house brandishing a gun at me i'm not going to treat them as well as someone mm. who just walked in nicely. So I can com- I completely see the Japanese perspective on that. Now, in in 1846, we have the rise of, and correct me if I pronounce his name cor- incorrectly, Il Naosuk. So
1: who was mm-hmm. he, and how did he change and develop Japan? Right. Uh it's, it's perfectly okay to get mixed up with that name. I got mixed up with that name a great deal. Luckily, yeah. <laughs> I, I had a conversation not too long ago with Leslie Downer, who wrote has written some excellent things about geisha, and she, and she told me how to pronounce it. It's actually something like... Um, and, because, and obviously, we don't say these names aloud very often, so we are going to butcher quite a lot of the language whenever we talk about it. But um, it's, it's apparently ee uh, Nauske um and he was um well he's the proverbial bull in the china shop he did uh, he did immense damage to the tokugawa government ostensibly in an attempt to save it he was the son of a powerful daimyo from uh ee which was the place he was from um, and he uh, he wasn't expected to amount to much, but ended up being appointed uh, to a, a government position called Tyro, which is a sort of dictator figure. And I mean that in the Roman classical sense, where a single guy is given almost absolute power to run the government in times of emergency. Um, so he gets this job coming sort of out of nowhere. And he took the Kaikoku stance, which is the open stance. He's the one who wants to, he, he's of the party that wants to try and play the long game. Uh, the Europeans are here. There's no way on earth that we can actually fight a war against them and win. Look what happened to China. Uh, let's just tolerate them. Let's learn how to build those ships. Let's learn how to build those modern guns. And let's strengthen ourselves and then deal with them. But, obviously, there were people who didn't agree with that, and he felt the need to remove those people. And in his attempts to both reform the shogunate, the, gov- the, the present government, and deal with his opponents, where the chaos um, basically broke out, and rather than unifying Japan and silencing silencing the equally unrealistic voices that called for full scale war, practically, um, he basically fractured the power of the bakufu still further by making himself the most powerful man in Japan by removing everybody else, and just basically disaster is waiting to happen if anything happens to this guy. Okay, and. It seems quite powerful. And you touch
0: upon that that removal of of opposition. Now as a as a as a student mm-hmm. of totalitarianism, I was I was all over this part. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned the the Ansei purge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what was what was this purge and and who who did he have removed?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, he 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 removed an awful lot of people. I mean the list is really quite long. He he removed several important daimyo who were uh, oppositionists to him. His great his great um, rival was the daimyo of Mito, which isn't far from Tokyo, uh, isn't far from Edo. Um, he he couldn't directly remove him, but he could remove a great deal of his um, his supporters, and he did this in several ways. He 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 had them exiled. He had them confined to their provinces. He had some of them arrested and thrown in jail and he even executed some of them so he uh he did this in the ansai era that's where the name comes from there are several their era names for large chunks of japanese history which is too complicated to get into right <laughs> now but this this period here within the edo period is called the ansai and um It was his attempt to remove his enemies in the opposition party because he feared a coup would eventually oust him um, as his allies felt pressure to resign or go into retirement because there's two forces at play here because everybody wanted him out all of the opposition party wanted him out of the way and they were trying to dig at his allies and he and he realizing this you know if, if they get rid of the the guys who put me here then i will be removed So I need to get rid of them first and so in 1858 he begins arresting vocal opponents and um, they grew in number and importance and like I say the various ways he did that I've already said uh, it was a very dark time to be honest and it was not only embedded not not only embedded resentment to the government but to the the pro-foreign faction and the foreigners themselves, because people said, why is this happening to us? Oh, yeah, the foreigners came in and caused all this mess. And now we've got crazies in our own country trying to be friends with them and stuff like that.
0: They, so you've, you've mentioned the the Japanese opinion of this wave of repression and violence. What was mm-hmm. the, the foreigners reaction to this?
1: Uh they, they because the um the foreigners didn't really have a clue what was going on in japan it was very difficult for them to get a handle on really what was happening they to a degree you see the reason that people saw the idea the the idyll of japan was because that was all they were allowed to see um i i go into it in the book um they're very restricted in what they can do whenever they go outside they have to be accompanied by guards and a retinue to keep them away from people and to make sure they don't go places they're not supposed to go and you know uh british diplomats french diplomats whoever diplomats they were were all unified in their in their just irritation. That they couldn't get more of a handle on how the Japanese government worked and how the politics worked, so they could understand what was happening in the country. Um, so, what they would notice would be the spike in anti-foreign violence and intimidation. Demand for weapons in the treaty po- ports crew, with Japanese bravos um, keen to kit themselves out with rifles and pistols, in addition to their swords, and Europeans also investing in some personal protection. Uh, with advisories uh, to the British legation staff being issued not long afterwards, for everybody to have a revolver with them whenever they went outside, because the only thing that basically scared a samurai was having a pistol pulled on him, because he he knows he can't he's not faster than a bullet, you know, despite what uh, some some older Kurosawa movies might have us believe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, yeah, they, they didn't really know what was going on. They just knew that something was happening that was stirring up opposition to them.
0: And you, you mentioned this, this violence and the increased protection that foreigners, particularly the British, had to have at this point. And around this area, we've already mentioned that the Japanese relationship with the foreigners is souring. Uh, and there's two attacks on, on British officers, um, so what 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 happens in these attacks, and how violent are
1: they? Well, I, there's there's really quite a lot of attacks to choose from, um, but uh, I, I take it you're talking about the, the, the attacks on the legations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah
0: particularly yeah. the Charles Lennox Robinson attack as well.
1: Right, right. Well, so what happens is um, there's there's sort of some a few phases. First of all, the legation in edo at the Temple of Tuzenji. Is attacked by um, well mysterious, mysterious people. They're not ninjas, but they're they're unofficial servants of some people say the Daimyo of Mito. Basically, high-ups in the anti-foreign party have allowed their retainers to go and attack them, basically. And people are killed, guards are killed, the legation is broken into, everybody is very scared. Lawrence Oliphant is badly wounded in one of these attacks and um the the uh the lennox richardson attack is a is sort of a direct um consequence of the violence that occurs in edo because the violence in edo and the inability of the shogun to adequately protect the european legations um forces most of them to leave and they go down they go down the coast a couple of miles to Yokohama, which is one of the new ports which the unequal treaties has gifted to, gifted to the foreigners. This is actually going to become a major center of trade and, uh, and, uh, and diplomacy in the, in the coming years. But they go down to Yokohama and this becomes a place where all the Europeans go. Richardson was a trader from China. He made a lot of money. He was kind of on a holiday on his way back to Britain. And he's on the road, I think it's 1863 uh, or maybe 1862, uh, whatever, he's on the road and he um, he and his part and a small party get attacked and he is killed. The other two are wounded and the lady accompanying them is, is badly frightened. Um, this happens basically because they get in the way of a procession of a an important daimyo from the south, Satsu, uh, I believe he is actually the father-in-law of the daimyo uh, of Satsuma, and they are. It is implied that they are disrespectful in the way they they interact with the procession, because in Japan, if if a daimyo comes down the road, you're supposed to get off the road and give it a wide berth and Europeans were technically supposed to be aware of this. But whatever happened, the guards felt they dis- that that the, the Rich- Richardson had disrespect to the daimyo and it was worth their lives, actually, to to allow such disrespect to occur in their heads. And so all of this anti-foreign sort of hatred and all the politics and stuff boiled over and they attacked them. They killed him. And those are the two famous incidents uh, of anti-foreign violence that you get at this period in the 1860s. And do these these
0: two attacks, do they dramatically change British uh, perspectives on the Japanese or British relationships with the ja- Japanese?
1: Um, n- not t- well, their, their opinion of the Japanese doesn't really change very much. They still think that samurai are terribly dangerous. Um, anybody with two swords, the two-sworded men, they called them, um, are very dangerous. Um, what it does is it's, it's a provoking, it's a it's sort of a provoking incident, which allows uh, certain de- diplomatic overtures to have more force than they had before, because it is a legitimate grievance when a bunch of civilians are attacked for apparently no reason, because of cultural misunderstandings. So things do definitely change, though. in In that Britain now sort of sort of presses on the accelerator a bit. And there's and there's another thing, part of this violence and that
0: changes this relationship, uh, and that's Nasuk's assassination. Mm-hmm. So how does that how does that affect things within this period?
1: Uh, well, as I said before, Nasuke was the most powerful man in Japan. And when he was assassinated, the Bakufu, uh, already fairly incapable of preventing anti foreign violence, was obviously unable to guarantee anybody's safety. And the British, like I say, moved out of Edo into Yokohama, although the Americans did stay uh, longer because they felt that they had nothing to do with the Europeans. But um, as a the, the British still didn't know how to handle or deal with the government and still didn't, and even more now didn't really know who was properly in charge now that he was dead. So what happens is a, when, he, when, when Narsuke dies is a, a further destabilization of the government and a further uh, reason to, to not trust it if you are of the opposition party and just a continually continual muddying of the waters if you're the british consul trying to figure out what's happening and who to complain to even about the rich the Richardson uh, affair and,
0: and who eventually stepped into this this void
1: well in terms of the in terms of the bakufu uh, yeah. yeah
0: and and the void of naosuke as well oh.
1: right well the there was. They didn't re-elect to Tyro or anything like that. He, that idea died with him, and instead, what you get is a succession of 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 um, leaders of the cabinet, you might call it, which was called the Roju, and there is there's just a succession of them basically that run down, uh, trying to do the will of the shogun, and there are several shoguns in this period who. Uh, all, uh, are either ill, die, to very young, uh, mentally incapable, stuff like that, until you get to the very last one, and there's a lot of power plays in between that, of people trying to secure the succession of the shogun. Indeed, Nowski himself uh, overstepped, them, uh, overstepped his, um, his parameters greatly when he tried to meddle with the succession of the shogun, and so to be honest, nobody properly fills it. Um, you get the the cabinet trying to fill it, this vacuum of power, but um, nobody properly does. And this is another big reason why this show, the shogunate is basically now just tripping and tumbling down a hill and can't stop itself.
0: And I, I can see, I can completely see why the British found that so difficult to, to navigate, especially if it's all happening behind closed doors and you, you don't know yeah. what's going on. And that must be a very difficult situation, particularly for the foreigners living there. So was that a different experience for them at this point than it was previously? Or was it still the same attitude to all the Japanese and the same relationship between the, with the Japanese?
1: Well, this, this sort of takes place over almost the entire kind of period from around 1862 to uh, 68, no, 60, I oh, will say 66, we'll say. And um, yeah, it's it's the British operate under a sort of a, a constant t- attempt to try and figure out how to get leverage with the Japanese to get what they want. Um, and so, for instance, they would use the, the violence against them as capital in order to sort of at least make a show of having some teeth. In the, uh, nothing particularly changed in terms of the official British line towards the government they didn't try and they didn't try and become kingmakers or anything like that or choose somebody because they just didn't know who to choose basically they wouldn't have had a clue who to back at this point if a civil war broke out Um, but what they did know how to do is to respond to stuff that happened to them so when richardson dies uh the guy in charge is uh the acting consul general st john neil and he does a fairly effective job of bullying the bakufu into um, a sort of a, putting them on the back foot because he's saying, you know you' you've let one of your lords just cut up one of our people you know we can't just let that happen. we have to respond to this um, and you know the bakufu kind of trying to trying to say well you know it was kind of his fault as well you should have you should, you should have known the law doesn't matter they, they ask for twenty five thousand dollars. Which is around 11 million pounds in today's money for the death of Richardson, and indeed for the deaths that occurred at the British legation in Edo. And this is this is the beginning sort of a, of the British getting the idea that they can sort of squeeze stuff out of the Japanese so long as they get, they get an inciting incident. Now the Bakufu, the shogunates, um, response to this is to essentially wash their hands of it and say, well, we didn't, the daimyo did this. This is all his fault. This is Satsuma's problem. We'll mediate it for you if you like, but you really have to get the money out of him. We're not paying you for this. And that leads to some rather messy incidents down the line in terms, in fact, open conflict, in fact. And,
0: And touching on that open conflict you just mentioned, how does that, how does that begin? Who you know who had the superior navy force, and what happened at the beginning of this mm-hmm. conflict?
1: Well, fighting broke out over the Richardson incident, like I say, um, and Colonel Neill sent out the British squadron at Yokohama under uh, Admiral Augustus Leopold Coupe to present an ultimatum to uh, uh, Shimatsu. Uh uh, at his capital at kagoshima which is in southern japan and is a very idyllic place you know you've probably seen photographs of the of the city with the volcano right over the bay that constantly dusts it in ash that's kagoshima and in terms of who had the most powerful navy undoubtedly the royal navy any european navy actually at this point with steam powered ships ironclads massive breech loading rifled cannon Um, You know, they they completely outmatched anything the Japanese could put in the water. So when the Satsuma officials prevaricated to the demands being made by the British in this instance, um, Neil authorized Cooper to take coercive action. Uh, First, this was very practical. The Admiral seized several valuable cargo ships, which basically was estimated to be worth the amount of indemnity that the British wanted from Satsuma, and the idea was, I guess, to blockade the port until they kept, sort of just broke down and said, "Okay, we'll pay up." Sorry for the sorry for sorry for the death of the guy, um, but bad weather was rolling in. Okay, and it, the Japanese shore batteries were all manned. Everybody noticed this, and. I like to think that it can't have gone unnoticed in those shore batteries in that part of Japan. That here was an enemy foreign flotilla sitting off our coast. And here is coming a typhoon. And the last time those circumstances occurred was when the Mongols were trying to attack. So maybe we should take the hint and and fight. (laughs) And they did. Japanese shore batteries opened fire and Cooper chose to engage them by running close inshore and battering each one stern. Uh, The Satsuma Gunners fought very bravely. They scored major hits on the flagship HMS Urialis, but were eventually silenced, and the town tragically was mostly set on fire, um, possibly deliberately, it's not quite clear, uh, by rockets and shells, um, with most of it burning down. That being said, Cooper did not land troops destroy the forts or capture the guns after he'd silenced them. Um, interestingly as well, one of the gunners was a young guy called Togo Hiachiro, uh, Nelson of the East and defeat the Russians um, at the Battle of Tsushima. Uh, so you have this is the first engagement of open conflict. It's, it's called the Anglo-Satsuma War. Um, It's also, I believe, the only engagement (laughs) to the Anglo-Satsuma War. Both sides sort of going out at hammer and tongs in this little stretch of water during a typhoon.
0: And it results in a British victory.
1: Well, the results are somewhat vague, to be honest. (laughs) Um, Not least because the British sailed away without really doing anything except burning part of the town down. And the Japanese happened to be shooting at them as they, as they went out of the harbor, so it looked as if they were running away. Um, Also, the British had scuttled those valuable cargo ships that they had captured earlier in the, earlier in the day, which had incited the Japanese batteries to open fire. So they didn't really, they didn't, they didn't come away with the objective that they went there to get, and the Japanese could legitimately claim that they had defended the defended Kagoshima, and the British had sailed away. But obviously, the truth was that the British did silence the battery. So tactically, yes, it's a British victory. But technically, as well, the sets, Satsuma could claim of themselves a victory, but victory really in the end. This, uh, the the Satsuma guys were hailed as heroes. Uh, the Bakufu eventually. Um, did a deal where they would pay off the indemnity or loan the money to, to pay off the indemnity. Uh, meanwhile, in Britain, the um, uh, the reaction was 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 not so positive. Um, with a wave of criticism coming from the opposition benches in Whitehall for the seemingly unilateral decision to just go and attack part of Japan um made at a at a consular level was very disturbing to a lot of people and also when they found out that so much damage had been done to the down that was very troubling as well so that being but that being said the, despite the censuring tone very little was done in terms of punishment and it was just sort of and time moved on so there's no easy answer as to who won the bank of yeah. kagoshima there seems to be a lot of
0: contemporary uh, comparisons like we said earlier between Japan and China but these comparisons seem to extend to the way that the war was fought uh, especially with the earlier wars in China but how did this war with China previously inform the way that the British dealt with the Japanese
1: well it's interesting that the the war in China, I mean, it did inform a little of the way the British went about military operations in in China, uh, in Japan. But uh, in a weird way, to begin with, at least, it was more important to the Japanese what the British had been doing in, in China. Because when the first treaties were signed, the Americans were obviously already there. And the American consul was... And for some reason, I've forgotten his name, which everybody will laugh at because he's actually kind of a famous guy. <laughs> but <laughs> um, Yeah, he, he told the Japanese government, you should, you should basically do as I say, I know how to deal with these people. If you don't, they will do to you what they did to China. And so that colored a lot of how the Japanese thought about what the British could do to them because they were quite well aware that the supposedly invincible empire of the Qing in China had taken the most awful punishment during the the Opium Wars. So there's that, Uh, but in terms of scale, they weren't really similar at all. Uh, The wars in China were directed against the actual Qing state and the Taiping rebels and included a substantial commitment of land forces from several European nations, including France. Um, in Japan, the fighting was localized to um, bombarding the fortress, the, the, the seaward fortifications of the daimyos, who had been disowned by the bakufu, by the shogun, people who were in opposite, outright opposition to the shogun, who had now esposed, espoused the the cause of the emperor, and were seen as basically cut off as rebels, practically. Uh, as we saw with the Richardson affair and the bombardment of Kagoshima, the, the, the Shogun couldn't do a blind thing to either stop the British or, or help, out, help out in the situation. Um, so this was definitely due to the fractured nation, nature of Japanese politics at the time. And it seems that the British government was, was highly reluctant however, to, to go to war again, over the commercial interests of merchants. This was a very big problem during the opium wars. You know, it was mostly done because of the opium trade and trade in general. It didn't want to start another war exactly the same in Japan. So the expenditure of money in thousands of men was not something anybody relished at the time. And some even doubted the Army and Navy's capability to win a war in Japan without extreme effort because it's quite a difficult country and high population. And if you try actually fighting the entire nation, you'll unify the entire nation as well. So you you couldn't fight the Japanese like you fought the Chinese, is the point. And they didn't. They tried to make sure that any coercive action, in quotes, was done against not the government, but independent rulers. Okay. And this kind of, or these kind of
0: coercive actions, did they ever move on land? Was there any fighting on land
1: that occurred between the British and the Japanese? Uh, yeah, um, but only in the context of like navigation, defense and landing parties from the fleets. Um, for uh, the most famous one is during the Battle of Shimonoseki in 1864. Uh, a large Allied flotilla landed over a thousand men to destroy the daimyo of Chosu's shore batteries. And in the fighting to take a fortified barrack um, during the operation, the naval brigade of uh, the Royal Navy, specifically those from the companies uh, landed from HMS Uriales, won three Victoria Crosses. Um, in, in the fighting to attack this, to this barrack block, including the first American to ever win a Victoria Cross. And,
0: and that's, that's remarkable that these, these men are doing such, such a lot of fighting to win these and such acts of bravery to win these awards. But then remarkably, the attitude shifts from the Japanese. What can you tell me about this, this shift in attitudes towards yeah. foreigners?
1: yeah um this is generally because the internal politics in japan distracted and took precedence from anti-foreign activities um it wasn't that suddenly everybody in japan accepted the foreigners but that the two opposing factions uh, of the shogun and the emperor now began to see the foreigners with their powerful navies as valuable allies uh, potential valuable allies much of this sea change for the British came because of the activities of some rather dodgy merchants who were running guns to the pro-imperial daimyos who were paying eye-watering sums of money for ships, cannons, rifles, and ammunition. Um, uh, and one of these guys uh, particularly persuaded the new consular, broom to Harry Parks, that British interests were better served in Kyoto rather than Edo. And all of this fatefully occurred just before the Boshin War. So that's it's it's more or less priorities changed rather than sort of uh, opinion changed.
0: Okay. All right. Because it all it seemed very odd to me reading just to see, you know, those those attitudes suddenly soften. Mm. Particularly after very brutal fighting and warships just sitting on your your coastline.
1: It, it it is kind of funny that the 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 two sort of the two domains that became most pro foreign were actually the ones that got attacked and bombarded by the British. It's uh Satsuma and Chosu became the most powerful uh, domains in the imperial faction and. We're quite happy to um, bury the hatchet with the British.
0: Well, I, I suppose you would be after suffering yeah, the amount so. of damage that they had.
1: <laughs> and then Japan
0: suddenly becomes engaged in this civil war. Uh, what was this this civil war over? And then how how was it resolved?
1: Hmm. Again, yeah something of a difficult question to yeah. answer in the because it, it, it's a it's actually a big subject you could you you could do a whole podcast about the Boshin war i wouldn't necessarily recommend doing recommend doing it with me but, <laughs> <laughs> but no that's a joke uh so yeah in in simplistic terms i guess you could say that many daimyo had lost faith in the in, in the shogun during the foreign intervent, uh, intervention and now thought that a restoration of the emperor as head of state was preferable to the crumbling edifice of the shogun's cabinet. Um, If you want to roll it back even further, you can see people losing faith in in, in the shogun as far back as the 1840s when laws about printing foreign material were, were were relaxed and a sort of a renaissance in publishing occurred in Japan and people and, and a great tome of history was written um, uh, that made the the argument that historically the Shogun was a servant of the Emperor. Let's all remember that he took power in a coup basically back in the 12th century and they, the shoguns never gave power back to the emperor. Um, but right now, because that's sort of, that's, that de- that's definitely an undercurrent running all the way through to now. Um, in 1867, the last shogun, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, decided that he himself needed to abdicate and hand power back to the emperor because he'd failed to reform the shoguns, the shogunate in a way that could make it work and go ahead and he didn't want anything to do with it if he couldn't do that um and have unfortunately tokugawa loyalists objected to yoshinobu then being sidelined from a leadership position or rather the tokugawa clan being sidelined from any sort of leadership position by the imperialist daimyos and fighting broke out between the imperial and uh, shogunal factions in 1868, when loyalist forces tried to advance on Kyoto from Osaka in the battle of Toba Fushimi, which saw the imperialists driven back to Osaka and then Edo fell in the, in the spring of that year. Uh, and critically, as we've seen, the Europeans had, t- had chosen sides but they had remained neutral. Though privately, the British had backed the imperialists and um, the French indirectly supported the shogun, sending officers to train his army. That's actually the last samurai's kind of thing there. Uh, He should actually be French. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tom Cruise should be French. Uh, uh, So the end result being that the emperor was restored and the shogunate forever ended. But honestly, the Boschian war, its causes and its results is actually a massive subject that we can't easily do justice to right now. Um, though I have tried yeah. <laughs> in my bumbling way.
0: No, it's, a very, it's a very clear and concise way of explaining it and its depth and its complexities. But the, the emergence of the emperor's actual power, not this symbolic figurehead, how does that change japan because obviously they're going to come with their own set of values and their own views that will mold japan at that point
1: mm-hmm. well first off let's let's be let's let's address two things to keep in mind for the for the, the audience who are still with us and haven't uh, <laughs> haven't, uh, <laughs> haven't logged on don't
0: do yourself a disservice That's <laughs>
1: uh first the idea that the bakufu shogunate was a dinosaur intent on resisting modernization is a is pretty unsatisfactory there's no evidence to suggest that it would that if the shogunate had been allowed to remain that japan would have reversed its course in some way um it's more complicated than that because it shows just as much appetite to modernize as the imperial faction it just It likely it wouldn't have done so at the expense of so much traditional Japanese culture. Um, Secondly, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that the Boshin War and the Meiji Restoration was a popular revolution. It was a revolution of the noble classes, much like the American Revolution, actually, which was led and directed by wealthy upper class landowners uh, who didn't like the way things were being run. It's the same in Japan. And the changes that come in under the restored emperor Meiji essentially reorganizes society, but in essence, not a lot changes as well. It's true that the traditional idea of a warrior elite is done away with in favor of a European monarchic and aristocratic model, but it's essentially swapping one system for another. This and many other modernizations is done at the expense of the old Tokugawa order, which meant that a lot of what we might call old Japan began to disappear. Indeed, later travelers coming to Japan, looking for Oliphant's Fairyland of the 1850s, were hard pressed to find it as Japan advanced. Uh, It advanced so quickly and rapidly that by the 1880s, the Europeans who had helped it industrialize began to use it as a boast uh, to show the benefits of Western civilization on old fashioned countries. This knack for progress, however, began to look increasingly troubling as the 20th century began, and Japan began to flex its newfound industrial muscles over Eastern Asia. Okay, and
0: we see, we see this development, we see this change happening within Japan and particularly within its sphere of influence, but how, how does it relationship with the West uh, particularly Britain change with this this new model and this industrialization?
1: Mm. Well Meiji the Meiji Emperor was very firm in 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 the idea that he wanted European interaction in in Japan going forwards. Now the british had chosen the winning side in the civil war and this got them into the room into the room where it happens so to speak to, to use a hamilton <laughs> reference. um emperor meiji he was he, like i say he was very keen to be a progressive leader and wanted to impress the, the europeans as well as get them on get them helping him to to solidify his position by modifying the country to something that they could recognize and they could get on board with in a way, he kind of wanted them to understand who they were, de- who who the headman was, who they were dealing with. He w- wanted to sort of banish the misconceptions and just get them to help him help help him restore his, you know, restore the empire, basically. Uh, and the British were more than happy to lend a hand wherever it was needed. To be unsurprisingly, uh, sending missions to train up the navy, inviting students to come to Britain and to study. And many, and sending out many entrepreneurs and industrialists who made a pretty penny by going out to Japan, building railroads, lighthouses, uh, and ships, uh, all of which you know helped the, with the grand plan that the emperor had, and his advisors had, um, and the daimyos who of Satsuma and Chosu who had helped him win the Boshin War had, you know, <laughs> again the. The, the the constitution of the of the Meiji era and the effects that it had is a massive subject in itself, and all the intricacies of the politics involved and who was who was doing what and where is a massive thing. But the important thing to remember for our purposes here is that Britain and Japan uh, remained allies from the the eighteen seventies basically until the middle of the twentieth century, where where or at least the end of the early 20th century when japan even joined the war against germany committing troops to the joint anglo-japanese siege of german held in the first world war and that's a measure of i think the relationship that was formed at the at the meiji restoration and how interested the two nations were at at building a solid alliance and it- and it's, it's a remarkable
0: development from Japan being an isolationist country to not wanting any foreigners in their country to having such a close bond uh, with the British. Um, but one, one character that I, I see throughout your book, um, and I did come to a door through the way that you've, you've written about him, is, is Sato. And I think we've already mentioned him already in this podcast. Now, can you tell us who, who Satao was and how important he was throughout this whole period?
1: Oh, Gladly, yes. Satao is, is a favourite of mine too. You can't not like Ernest Satao uh, and read about this period <laughs> in, in Japanese history. He's, he's one of our most important sources for the story of the British in Japan. Um, he's one of the reasons why I realised I could write this book. When I, when I read his book, I realised there's so much more it to this story than just the bombardment of shimonoseki and stuff like that um he went out as a student interpreter um and learned to read write and speak japanese um this was in this was i believe in the early 1850s um by way of china because all interpreters had to learn some chinese before they went to china for some reason that he found quite mystifying because he said that it really didn't have any practical um sort of effect on learning japanese it kind of helped in the way that you could learn latin to theoretically learn um italian but it wasn't necessary so he 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 has all those he has all these lovely little intricate little nuggets of of personal thought and observation that just just make the picture of the british in japan really quite rich and I, I i felt quite lucky that there were so many talented writers and travelers and diplomats who did write about their time in japan that it aided me in writing the book and Sato was absolutely one of them um, by 1865 he was in, indispensable to the legation and well known in edo osaka and kagashima as the man to talk to if one wanted to approach the british uh, he wrote a book which uh, the book I was talking about before called A A Diplomat in Japan, uh, which is excellent. And it's, it's available, uh, I believe on internet archive and Gutenberg and stuff like that. So you don't even need to pay to read it. Um, uh, he wrote love, many, that. exactly, exactly. He wrote he wrote many things actually, books and papers on Japan. He founded societies to study Japanese culture and history. Uh, he's, he's massively important in the inter- interaction of the two countries, to be honest. And he eventually became the ambassador to Japan in the eighteen nineties. Yeah, he's he's, he's absolutely he's absolutely amazing. He's great. Um, and um, you could you could you could do a movie about Ernest Sato.
0: And definitely from some of the tales that you put within your book, you you could 100 percent make a very engaging and entertaining movie about and sat And he's definitely one of the characters that I came away thinking I'd need to read more about this man. <laughs> so now final fun question for you, Josh, is we do it for all our guests. You've you've traveled to many places all over the world. And what are the three craziest places that you personally have been to?
1: Well, it's sort of a tough one because I tend to stay away from the crazy places, (laughs) Uh, but (laughs) uh, there are certainly parts of the USA I would call crazy. Um, uh, I'm thinking like Florida and Texas are pretty unique in that sense. And parts of actually in our own country, um, parts of Scotland and and the West Coast, uh, West Country are, are likewise standouts, I think, to my mind i'm actually thinking to be honest the reason the reason that the florida sprang to my mind is because it it was in florida uh, (laughs) i was for instance um, witness to a police takedown of some guy with a pistol in a car park oh um yeah uh, (laughs) the guy was behind i was in the car the guy was behind me like some like two like the other rank of cars over and then I was just sort of on my phone, waiting for someone to come out of the shop. And I something something moved out of the corner of my eye, and it was like two policemen coming forward, like it was a cop show, with the guns poised and out, and all like crouched down and slowly moving, moving past me. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what do I need to do? The thought in <laughs> my mind. What do I need to do right now? <laughs> I think uh, that, that was. <laughs> That was one of the craziest and most mundane things at the same time I've ever been party to.
0: <laughs> I think that one definitely will take top prize. <laughs> mm. And if our listeners would want to engage with the topic even more, what other what other books could they could they read um, or things that they can go and listen to or watch to learn more about this period?
1: Uh, there is an awful lot you can get into uh, with. With this period in, in Japanese history, um, for a start, there's Ernest Satow's book. I mean, I'd, I'd love it if people bought mine. You know, <laughs> the reason the, the reason I the reason I wrote it was kind of so that you would be able to find these sources. You know that you could find the stories of it. You would like you like yourself that you like Ernest Satow, so you want to read more about them. So. Ernest Satow, for a start, is a great start. He wrote A Diplomat in Japan, and it's just full of great stories and sort of insights into this period of Japanese history. There's an awful lot of actually travelers' memoirs and stuff and diplomats' books from the 1850s and 60s, which are equally good, like Lawrence Oliphant, Dr. Rennie, um, people like that. For overall studies of, say, this this time in Japanese history, uh, there's there's Romulus Hillsborough's Samurai Revolution, that's a pretty good overview of the Japanese side of things, um, uh, and I'll talk about the Boshin War and politics and and the various interesting characters that we all should we all should probably know more about if we're interested in Japanese history. Um, also, that's quite accessible as well. It's it's a well written book. If you want something a bit deeper and more scholarly and therefore requires quite a great deal of attention. Um, uh, Then you want um, Conrad Totman's um, uh, The Fall of the Tokugawa Bakufu. And that's a very interesting book that's got tons of great stuff in it. Um, And it's only confusing because he has no mercy on you in terms of the dating system which is different in, which, different in Japan at that time. And he just expects you to do the, the conversion <laughs> in your head. So yeah, those books stand out to me, I think. I mean, I, you should also check out Leslie Downer as well. Um, Leslie Downer wrote um, of the book Geisha and uh, Madame Sarayako, uh, the geisha who um, seduced the West. And also she's written some great fiction about uh this time period um about uh which will i think probably give you a a nice insight into into things if you're more for if you would like to engage in if you like to engage in history from a from a fictional perspective you should go with leslie downer i mean there's also a japanese author called Ryotaro um shiba who wrote the last shogun which is also very good brilliant and then
0: if or well, definitely they should go and look out for it. If they want to go and find the Wild East, where, where can we find a copy of your book, Josh?
1: Well, um, you know, the funny thing is I've never actually seen it in a bookstore because it came out <laughs> during, during the oh, pandemic. <laughs> um, but I, I, I assume it's in some bookstores, uh, all good bookstores, sorry, I'm sure all good bookstores <laughs> Wild East. But of course there is the publisher's website and the publisher always prefers you to buy from them it gives me a slightly bigger cut and it gives them a slightly bigger cut and cuts out Amazon. Don't have anything against Amazon. Please leave a review. Yeah. yeah, So it's published by Font Hill. So if you go to the Font Hill website and you look for wild East, you'll find it just a quick Google will, will give you nice options as to where to get it from. You can go to my own website, joshproven.com where I have all the books listed and all my appearances, podcast appearances and stuff like that. Um, I don't know where else you could look for. Maybe it's in second-hand bookstores by now. I don't know. <laughs> and then, if
0: our listeners want to talk to you, engage with you more online, where can they find you?
1: Well, uh, I am—I'm the—I'm the founder and admin of Adventures in History Land, which is the blog. So, a hey, fantastic in Land.
0: blog. Maya I point out
1: to everyone as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, the Adventures in History Land uh, website is—we'll just Google it. There aren't many of them around. Uh, you'll find it, uh, uh, and obviously Twitter, Land of History, at Land of History, um, YouTube, Adventures in History Land. Basically, if you find me in one place, you'll find me in them all. So just check out those those feeds, and and I'll be there. I'll say hi, and I'll ensure
0: um, that those links are available for everyone else in the description as well. So they're just a little bit easy, a little bit more easily accessible. Awesome awesome thank you very much josh you've been absolutely fantastic today, and it's been great to see your passion and your knowledge uh i've learned so much from you already not just from your book but just from this extra information for the podcast so thank you very much for coming Uh,
1: my pleasure thank you for having me